Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 89, How to Judge a Camera. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks guys for tuning in to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you are new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here on the podcast, we talk about all things video from storyboarding and script writing to how to price your work. We talk about it all on this podcast. We also have a Facebook group that is a private group called Filming with Josh. So be sure to go to Facebook, type in the search bar Filming with Josh and ask to join the group today. The Filming with Josh Facebook group is a continuation of this podcast and is a place where you can come and ask questions, share your work, ask for feedback, keep up uh, with news on camera updates and things that come out and things of that nature. So we'd love to see you there. So come join our community at Filming with Josh on Facebook. Today's episode is about how to judge a camera. When you go to buy a camera, or if you're just simply interested in a camera and want to know if it's something you want to buy down the road, how do you judge it? How do you judge the image quality? How do you judge the performance? How do you know if the camera is a good fit for you? That's what I want to talk about today. The first thing I want to mention is be careful what you see online. There are gobs and gobs and gobs of YouTubers out there today, and so many of them, when a camera comes out, they'll grab it, they'll get hands-on with it for a period of time, and then they'll do a review on it. And it's really hard, in my opinion, to judge a camera based on an online YouTuber's review. There's so many things that go into play on what someone else's experience with a camera might be. And they might have an experience that they love that might actually not be applicable to you, or they might have a poor experience, but you know, come to find out after doing some digging, you might see that really it was more them than it was the camera. It's, it's really hard because you don't always know if you can trust what you see. This is a good example that I like to give when talking about this situation. It's the FX9 versus the FX6. There are a lot of people that will say the FX9 produces a much higher quality image than the FX6 and therefore must be a much better camera. And look, if you genuinely had an FX9 and an FX6 with the same exact lens and the same exact exposure and the same exact picture profiles and settings, shooting the same exact image at the same exact time in the same exact lighting situation and everything, you might be able to tell that the FX9 is slightly more detailed than the FX6 because the FX9 does have a 6K sensor and it's downsampling that to 4K in camera if you're shooting in full frame. And if you're shooting on the FX6, you are shooting on a sensor that is slightly larger than 4K and has a very small oversample to 4K. And the image on the FX6 versus the FX9 should be all things considered, not as detailed. But you would only be able to see it if looking at two images in the exact same situation using the exact same lenses and viewed the two shots side by side blown up. That's the only way you could tell the difference and the difference even then would be very slight. The reality is, is that the two cameras are very, very, very similar. The FX6 is better than the FX9 in low light. The FX6 um, 
has a lot of features the FX9 doesn't have, like 4K 120. The FX9 has a slightly more detailed image, but it's not as good in low light. It's missing frame rate options. Can't do raw to a recorder without having to have an extension unit on the back. So there are some, some big differences between the two cameras, but the image overall is pretty similar. But here's what happens. You go online and you will see projects shot on the FX9 and most of them look really, really good. Then you could go to YouTube and type in FX6 videos and look at some videos that are done by the FX6 and you might notice that a lot of those videos don't look nearly as good as the FX9 videos. And so you might be judging these cameras based on what you see online. But think about it. The FX9 is a more expensive camera came out at a launch price of $11,000. It just dropped $1,000 in price and is now 10 grand. But the launch price was 11 grand and the launch price for the FX6 was six grand. So the FX9 at launch was almost double the price of the FX6. Plus, it's more expensive to set up. It requires a bigger, heavier tripod and fluid head combination. It requires um, a, a little bit more um, expensive media type because the FX6, even though it takes CF Express Type A cards, it is backwards compatible with UHS-2 SD cards, so you can get up and running with cards that you have at your house, where the FX9, you have to get XQD cards. And so there are things that make the FX9 more expensive beyond just the flat price. And so what happens is, is the type of person who's going to buy an FX9 is usually going to be a different type of person than who's going to be buying the FX6. Now, that's not always the case, obviously. But there are more people who can afford to buy the FX6 than who's going to buy the FX9. If you are buying an FX9, and again, this isn't always the case, but most of the time, if you're buying the FX9, you're buying it because you've been doing this for a long time and you have a very specific need and that camera fits your need. And you're usually probably going to work on projects that have maybe a little bit more of a crew, maybe a little bit more of a budget. Again, I didn't say this is always the case. This is just most of the time, that's what you're going to run into. FX9s find themselves on a lot of dock projects and and projects where you're going to see uh, somewhat of a crew. Even if it's a smaller crew, you're still going to be seeing that camera used less as a run-and-gun camera for a one-man band than you are the FX6. The FX6 is far more likely to go to people who work by themselves or with really small crews. And as such, it is only natural that if the FX9 is going on set with typically more crew members and bigger budgets and, and more time spent on lighting and lenses and stuff like that, then obviously the FX9 is probably going to find itself in situations that are going to create a better looking image than what the FX6 is going to find itself in. The FX6 can be used in those same situations, but a lot of people who buy the FX6 buy it to run and gun and film run one man band stuff. And so when you're comparing the two based on images you see online, you might think, man, I see a lot of awesome FX9 footage, but the FX6 footage I see isn't quite as good. Well, it really could just come down to the situation. The FX9 just might, that the footage you're watching very well likely might just be being used on a bigger budget project with more people involved, better lighting and better lenses. Whereas the FX6 footage you see might be someone who's running around filming YouTube videos and 
maybe are working with natural light only and are using affordable glass that's not as uh, as as good looking as the glass that's being used on a lot of the FX9 footage that you see. So again, I'm not saying this is always the case, but oftentimes you'll see that more expensive cameras look more expensive because they're being used in higher budget situations where more time is being put into pre-production and the cheaper cameras tend to find themselves in situations where they are being used by lower budget projects in more run and gun situations. And so as such, it's only natural that a lot of the cheaper cameras that you watch videos of online may not look as good as the more expensive cameras. I mean, how often do you see you know, an, an Alexa Mini LF reel online or, or, or video online that looks bad? You're not, right? Because if anyone's renting or buying an Alexa Mini LF, they're going to be using it in really high budget situations more more than likely and there's usually going to be a crew and and a lot of a lot of people involved and and a, and a lot more pre-production and so naturally the footage is going to look better i mean it's a great camera but it's also being used in a better scenario than what a mirrorless camera is being used in most of the time so you have to take that with a grain of salt because a lot of times i hear people say that they feel like the fx9 is a better looking camera than the FX6 image wise, but most of the time it, it honestly, it just boils down to who's using it and in what situation they're using it in more than it is just the two cameras. So you have to keep that in mind. And I'm only using this as an example. There are so many other examples. If you look at uh, C70 footage or uh, R5 or R5C footage from Canon, Canon, and you compare that to C500 Mark II footage you see online, naturally the c500 mark ii is probably going to be used more often than not in situations where there's more of a budget than who's using an r5 or an r5c so naturally the c500 mark ii footage is going to look better and that doesn't mean that it shouldn't i mean it is a better camera but you get the point the point is you have to take things with a grain of salt a camera may not always be being used in the best situation, and so the footage you see may not look great, but it might be more the, the situation it's in than the camera itself. So you got to be really mindful of that. I know for me, when I bought my FX6, and because uh, I do, I work with smaller crews, and a lot of times I shoot by myself, and uh, that's just the, the business I'm in, the type of work I do. So it fits me perfectly. Um, I had an FS7 and an FS7 Mark II before it. They're great cameras. Uh, but I wanted something a little smaller, a little more nimble, a little bit easier to work with. So I, I bought the FX6. And I judged it based off of firsthand experience. When I got the camera and I worked with it and I colored the footage and I shot with it, that's how I was able to judge the camera. Because what I saw online, I knew may not be a great representation of what the camera can and cannot do. So you really have to keep that in mind when, when you watch stuff online. And on top of that, you also have to be mindful of people's experiences and, and what type of work they're using these cameras for. If you're shooting weddings in real estate, the perfect camera for you is probably going to be a mirrorless camera. But you might find someone who's used to working with bigger cameras and they might 
do a review on a mirrorless camera and completely trash it because they hate the size, they hate the ergonomics, they don't like that it doesn't have ND filters, they don't like that it doesn't have audio inputs, and all these other things, and they might trash the camera, but really it's just because they might be doing different work than what you're doing, and the camera, that mirrorless camera may not be applicable to the type of work that they're doing. It might not be the best camera for the job, whereas for you, it might be the perfect camera for the job. So you really do have to take everything with a grain of salt. What type of work you do goes a long way in judging how a camera is going to work for you. Because a camera, when you go to buy a camera, an image, the image out of that camera is only part of the equation. How the camera is to work with is the other part. If you buy a camera that produces an amazing image, but it's a pain in the butt to work with, you're not going to have a good overall experience with that camera. If it's overheating, if it's got poor rolling shutter performance, if it's got weird button placement or uh, menus are hard to load or, or hard to navigate through, if the camera takes forever to turn on, those are all things that are going to kill your experience with the camera, even if it has an amazing image. So you really do got to pay attention to more than just the image, but how the camera works, what are the ergonomics, what's the button layout, what's the menus like, um, what's the camera like to work with in real life, and Use that as a big part of how you judge the camera because that's going to be um, very important for how you work with the camera and what kind of experience you have when you do work with that camera on a day-to-day -day basis. So you, you have to really be mindful of what it's like to work with that camera. And so keeping that in mind, when you watch people online who are reviewing cameras, you, you can't always trust their experience because the type of work that they do and the type of shooter that they are may not be applicable to you. So they might rant and rave about how wonderful an FX9 is, but maybe the camera's a lot bigger than what you would like to work with. And maybe you would go off and buy one after watching a review, but you hate it because it's so big and heavy and you just don't enjoy the experience. So you really have to take everyone's reviews with a, with a grain of salt and you have to judge the camera based on not just the image, but also what it's like to work with. And only you are going to be able to know whether the camera fits you and the type of work you do or not. You know, what works for me might not work for you and what works for you might not work for someone else. So it really comes down to your personal preference. And you got to remember that when you're buying a camera, you're buying a camera that fits you, not what fits someone else. You shouldn't buy a camera just because someone tells you to buy it. You should only buy it because it's a great fit for you and how you like to work. I prefer Sony cameras because I enjoy working with them. I enjoy working with their menus and I enjoy working with their images and posts. I love their ergonomics and their button layouts. Their cameras just make sense to me. And so I like working with them. But you may hate Sony, you may love Red, you may love Canon, you may love Fuji, you may love Nikon, and that's fine. So you just got to pick what works for you and not what works for someone else because that's what's really important. And in saying that, I want to give you some advice on how you can go online and what to look for to judge a camera to be able to decide if you feel like it may or may not be a good fit for you. Because there are some things that you can look for that can help you decide whether or not the camera has image quality issues, if it's got um, problems with performance. So what I want to do is give you some bits of advice of things to look for and to keep an eye on that will give you at least a ballpark idea of what the overall experience and um, performance of the camera might be. Again, take everything with a grain of salt, but there are some places that you can go 
to get at least some solid information that you can use to compare one camera versus another. Um, my first place I usually go to when I'm considering a mirrorless camera is DP Review. DP Review usually comes out with these um, really in-depth reviews on mirrorless cameras that come out. They don't really do video cameras as much, but they do mirrorless cameras and they do talk about video, um, video from these mirrorless cameras. And what I have learned is if they, they usually have like a, a hands-on preview of a camera and their first-hand experience when it first comes out, but they'll later on come out with a full review. And I think the full reviews of, of mirrorless cameras and DP review is a great resource um, because they have a few tools that you can look at that will help you get a really good idea of what the performance expectations should be for certain things. One thing that they have, for example, is they, they shoot this, they have this scene that they have put together. It's got all these things that are glued down to this board and they've got these little charts. They have these little, um, little images, uh, playing like playing cards, like from a deck, like a deck of cards, um, little, uh, images of like, a, like the, uh, of, uh, of people, they'll even have um, like a feather, they'll have all these things that are glued to a board. And what it is, is they will take a mirrorless camera they're reviewing, and they will um, position the camera over that board in the same spot. They do every camera in the, the same, shooting the same board, and they try to use a similar um, width or similar, similar focal length on every camera so that they can uh, have a consistency across the board. And what they do is they shoot this board and they'd shoot it in various video modes. So like for instance, if you're wanting to judge the quality of a Sony A1, then in the review, you can choose and look at what does the image quality on of this board look like in 8K? What does it look like in full frame 4K? What does it look like in full frame APS-C crop mode? And what does it look like in 4K 120? And so DP Review genu genuinely takes the time to shoot this same board with all of these things that are glued to it, they shoot that board in all the various shooting modes on that camera, the different resolutions and, and frame rate combinations, so that you can online use the tool that they have to judge the image quality of the different shooting modes. And you can use that to see things like detail. Like if you look at the feather on the board, or if you look at like the playing cards, or some of the little, little notes and stuff they have on there, uh, you can look at that and see if the image is sharp and detailed or if it's soft. They also have a bunch of lines that go together and these little charts that will show aliasing and more if a camera is really susceptible to that. So if you have a camera that pixel bends, for instance, you'll see aliasing and more It's really obvious. What you'll, what you'll notice is you'll see this like this wavy line and it looks kind of blur, like things will look blurry. You might notice, um, that it's creating these little like purple circular or half moon rings and things like that. And so you should look for that when you are looking at this chart, you're looking, or is, is everything look clean and detailed or do things look kind of soft and mushy or uh, is there aliasing and more happening? And if you don't know what aliasing more is again, just Google aliasing more and you can see online examples of what that looks like. But in DP review, the way that they make this board, it, does a great job of allowing you to see aliasing amore because there are things on that board that will show aliasing amore really well. And aliasing amore is something you don't want. Sorry if you hear all these text messages. My wife is blowing up my cell phone. Um, 
with TikTok videos, which is annoying, but I love you, babe, but I'm podcasting here. Anyway, what's a, what's great is, so aliasing is, a, is an issue. If you are filming, let's just say you're filming a real estate video and you've got a camera and you've got a wide lens and you're shooting at high frame rate, but the camera's got uh, some pixel bending issues uh, that, that create aliasing and moray. And so what will happen is, is if you're shooting the inside of a home, for instance, and let's just say there's backsplash, back I'm going to text my wife and tell her to stop texting me. Stop texting me. Sorry. Um, so what you'll notice is you'll be in like, let's just say you'll be in the in the kitchen and you'll be filming a shot in a real estate video. And let's just say there's a bunch of backsplash on the wall. Backsplash is contains a bunch of lines, right? It's a fine, it's a bunch of tile that is in a repeating fine pattern. That is a perfect situation where you'll see aliasing and moray. And what it is, is the camera can't create enough information or detail to handle all of the little bits of tile that are lined up in a row in a fine repeating pattern. And so you'll notice aliasing and moray, which is this this kind of like wavy textury look that's going over the backsplash. Another example is if you're filming an interview and someone is wearing um, a long sleeve shirt or a short sleeve shirt that's got pinstripes on it, like fine little stripes, you'll notice that aliasing and moray, which is creating this weird movement on the pattern of their shirt that has all the lines on it. So you've probably, now that I say that, you probably know what I'm talking about. That's aliasing and Mori. So on DP Review's website, they on their chart that they make, that this little board that they shoot with every camera review they do, they have fine repeating patterns that will show if a camera has aliasing and moray, and if so, which shooting modes have aliasing and moray and which don't. Aliasing and moray is disgusting. It's really ugly looking, and to me it ruins a shot. And in real estate, I see that a lot when people shoot real estate videos where there's a lot of opportunity for fine repeating patterns in homes. I oftentimes will see aliasing and moray on the wall or on a kit, you know, on like a like kitchenware or in a bedroom, uh, and and it looks horrible. And so, if I'm judging a mirrorless camera that I'm interested in buying, that I might use in, let's just say I'm going to use it for uh, shooting home building projects, and I know I'm going to shoot a staged home to promote a home builder, and I know that there's a chance there could be opportunity where my you know a camera would be tripped up by aliasing more what i would do if i'm going to buy a camera for that is i go to dp review and i look at that i pull up that camera's review and i look at the different shooting modes i'm going to use like i know i'm going to use 4k 60 so i look and see what does 4k 60 on that camera look like on this board that DP Review shoots. And that is a great indication of what to expect when I go and take that camera out on a real world project. If I'm if I'm seeing a lot of aliasing and moray on that board on DP Review, then I know for a fact, especially if it's in the mode I plan to use it in, like say 4K60, then I know if I buy that camera, then when I go to use it, on a real estate project or a project that's marketing something like a home builder, I know I'm going to have aliasing and moray in my shots. And therefore, that camera is not a good option for me. See, this is a non-biased review. This is nothing to do with someone's opinion on YouTube. This is a factual thing. They're shooting a chart, a series of, of things like details of feathers and, and things that will trip up a camera and show aliasing. And so I can sit there and look and judge a camera based on factual 
actual information and I can look at the frame rate resolution combination I plan to shoot in and I can instantly know if that camera is a good choice for me or not based on the aliasing and more. Same thing with detail. If the image looks really soft, maybe it's not a good choice. If it looks really detailed and there's no aliasing and more, then I know that that is a good choice. So it's a great resource for judging mirrorless cameras. Unfortunately, they don't do that for video cameras. They really only review mirrorless cameras, but we all use mirrorless cameras for the most part a lot of times in our work, even if they're just B cams or C cams. So it's a great place to go to be able to judge the video quality of a mirrorless camera you're interested in. And to make things better, they have a side-by-side -side comparison on the reviews where if you're reviewing, say, a Sony A1 in this example, you can click on an R5C uh, and, and pull it up right next to the A1 and you can dra drag your mouse around on that chart and it zooms in on the chart for you and you can compare the A1 versus say the R5 or R5C and see which one is better at which situation. Is the A1 better at 4K60 in full frame than the R5C? You'll know by looking at that chart and looking for things such as aliasing and more. So I think that is a fantastic resource for mirrorless cameras for judging the quality of an image based on sharpness, detail, and aliasing and more, which are things that really will make a difference in, in a real world shoot. So if you're very interested in buying a mirrorless camera and you're wondering what is the image quality gonna be like, don't watch a bunch of random YouTuber videos that may or may not apply to you or may or may not have a good budget behind them or anything like that. Instead, go to DP Review. I mean, you can watch those things, those are fine, but if you want factual information that you can actually look at and know is not biased, go to DP review and compare that mirrorless camera to another mirrorless camera you have or that you're interested in and look and see what the sharpness detail and aliasing more are like in the shooting modes and resolutions you plan to use. And I think that is just a fantastic way to know whether or not a camera is going to be a good fit for you. Because I hate aliasing more. It looks really amateurish. It looks you won't see aliasing and more on high-end shoots usually. And so um, if you're wanting your stuff to look really good, buy a camera that's got a lot of detail and that doesn't have aliasing and more issues, go to DP Review and that'll be a great way to judge that. That is one of my favorite ways to judge a camera. So I think that's, uh, that's one thing that you can do to give you a really good idea of what to expect. DP Review also oftentimes does... Um, shots that show off rolling shutter. And you can also, Gerald Undone is another good resource. He usually does rolling shutter tests on cameras. The problem with Gerald Undone is he doesn't test every camera. However, for some of the most popular cameras that come out, he does test them out. And rolling shutter is a measurable, it is a measurable characteristic of a camera. And so what you can do if you're interested in buying a camera is you can go to resources like DP Review or like Gerald Undone and look at the rolling shutter test. Again, this isn't biased information. This isn't telling you whether the camera is amazing or not. It's, it's a factual thing that you can look at and analyze and say, does this camera handle rolling shutter well or does it not handle it well? If you don't know what rolling shutter is, it's that bendy, wavy, jello-y look you get on certain cameras. 
And it's especially noticeable if you are moving the camera, like if you're shooting handheld or if you're panning the camera, especially with long lenses. Um, it's also noticeable if you're filming something fast, like a train driving by or a car driving by. Basically what it is is the camera can't shoot uh, fast enough um, internally to be able to, to um, handle the speed of which your hand movements are or your tripod pans are or the the fast movement that's happening in front of you a camera that has a really ha really fast refresh rate won't have a lot of rolling shutter issues and so therefore when you're filming with that camera you will not notice that jello-y effect or at least not as much as maybe a camera that's really bad at it now there are cameras out there that have global shutters and global shutter cameras don't have rolling shutter issues but global shutter cameras are typically much more expensive and sometimes they suffer in dynamic range rolling shutter cameras are easier to manufacture they're cheaper and they typically have really approved dynamic range versus global shutters. However, they are more susceptible to showing the rolling shutter jello effect. So most cameras are going to have that effect to some degree. Um, so if you are interested in buying a camera, you can look at places like DP Review, Gerald and Dunn, uh, CineD, News Shooter. A lot of those places do a good job of testing rolling shutter in a camera and being able, and, and, and they give you like, an example of the rolling shutter, whether it's a video example or they take a screen grab and they post the screen grab one or the other so that you can look at it and see how severe is the rolling shutter or jello effect. There's also a numerical number that is correlated with rolling shutter that can help you decide whether or not uh, a camera's rolling shutter is better than a comparable camera's rolling shutter. But a lot of people that will go way over your head. So rather than trying to understand the numerical value, just look at videos that demonstrate the roll and shutter or uh, go to websites that have screen grabs of it so that you can see how bad is that jello effect. Like a great example is if someone's swinging a golf club, is that club straight or is it bending? during that fast paced motion. If it's bending, then the camera has bad rolling shutter performance. If the golf club is straight or close to being straight, then the rolling shutter is not much of an issue. And again, global shutters, it will be straight because they don't have a rolling shutter and that is not a problem. But again, most cameras do have a rolling shutters uh, design and therefore there's gonna be some degree of bend in that golf club. It's just how much. And so, my suggestion is look at these various reviews and judge the roll and shutter performance. Roll and shutter makes a huge difference. Don't think it doesn't. It makes a huge difference. I've seen a lot of videos online that are shot on cameras that have bad rolling shutter performance and their videos a lot of times, especially when they're shooting like handheld or if there's a lot of movement, it everything looks kind of wobbly, jiggly, jello-y. It looks really bad. You won't see that if you go to the movies and you watch a movie, you're not going to see that. So if you want your, your, your work to look more professional, do your best to get a camera that doesn't have poor roll and shutter performance. The Sony a7S III, the Sony FX3, the FX6, um, and even the Sony A1s, they have really good roll and shutter performance. Um, the Sony a 60 
500 and a6300 that came out several years ago they're some of the worst rolling shutter cameras i've ever seen and i owned both of those cameras and i hated working with them because anytime i touched them <laughs> everything looked jelloey and wobbly and and so use that as a way to judge a camera because it's a measurable item it's not a biased item it's not an opinion it's a measurable item and you need to know is this going to have this problem or not so that's something that you can measure similar similar to sharpness detail aliasing amore which you can see on dp reviews website so that's another thing that you can do to judge a help you judge a camera another thing you can do to help you judge a camera is look for dynamic range tests now dynamic range isn't as important as a lot of people I think make it out to be. I think dynamic range is definitely important, especially if you're working on a project where you have no control over certain lighting scenarios. It can save your butt in certain situations, but a little bit of lighting goes a long way and a camera that doesn't have the best dynamic range can still look just as, as good as a camera with much better dynamic range so long as you know how to light. So dynamic range is important, but it's not the have all be all because a little bit of lighting makes up for that. That being said, if you want to see what kind of dynamic range a camera has, don't judge it based on what the camera manufacturer says. If you see that Sony comes out with a new camera and they're claiming it's got 14 or 15 plus stops of dynamic range, do not believe that. Camera manufacturers will stretch that as far as they can. Red is notorious about that. It's got 17 stops of dynamic range. Does it really though? So you don't want to really listen to the manufacturer because most of the time manufacturers are stretching the truth. Airy tends to be pretty accurate, but most cameras, camera brands are not. So you want to look at dynamic range tests that are done by people who actually know what they're doing and that have a system where you can compare one camera versus another. Now, there is a lot of debate on whether or not CineD.com measures dynamic range correctly. Some people say their, their system makes sense. Some people say their system does not make sense. Here's what my opinion is. Whether or not CineD gets the dynamic range number correct is up for debate. What is not up for debate is that they test every camera the same way every time. So if you go to CineD's website and you compare one camera versus another, you can look at one of their camera's dynamic range tests, like say an FX9, and you can compare that to the test they did on a C500 Mark II. And whether or not the number of stops of dynamic range they give the camera is accurate doesn't matter. What really matters is what does the FX9's dynamic range look like compared to the C500 Mark II. Their system, whether or not you think they get the stops correct doesn't matter because their system is consistent. And all you really need to know is what does one camera compare to another camera? Like what, what is that comparison like? Is, is one camera similar to another? Or is it smoke the other one? Or is it way behind the other one? And so Cine D, whether you agree with their system or not, 
you can at least rest assured in knowing that they're consistent. And so their tests are going to at least be very helpful for comparing dynamic range of one camera body versus another, and will give you some good measurable insight on what to expect when comparing two different brands of cameras. They also do the same thing with low light, and so that really helps you see what to expect in certain lighting situations. And I think that's a great tool for comparing one type of camera to another and gives you kind of like that test we talked about on DP review earlier. It gives you a really good way or indication on how to compare one camera versus another. And I find that to be a very helpful resource. Another thing you can do is if you look at reviews online, sometimes they will provide raw footage that you can download. And so what I like to do sometimes if I'm interested in a photo camera, for example, I will download raw images and I'll put them in Lightroom and I will edit them and see if I like the colors and see if I like my uh, editing style with those uh, raw photographs. People do the same thing for video. Sometimes you can find reviews that will have um, FX6, FX9, C300, C500, R5, R5C, um, you name it. Like There are so many reviews out there for different cameras where you can go on and download raw footage um, to, to edit and to play around with online to see if you like the way that it grades. So if you're you know interested in buying a camera and you want to shoot log with that camera, try to find a place online where you can access log footage, test log test footage that you can throw into you know Resolve or Premiere or Final Cut or whatever you use and that you can go in and cut and edit that you can play around with and you can test the coloring and see if you like the files. That's like a really great way to know um, what it's like to work with the codecs from a camera and what it's like to work with the um, the coloring of a camera, etc. Another thing to think about, speaking of codecs, is the formats a camera shoots in. You should definitely think about that when you are judging a camera. A camera can have all the specs in the world, but if the codec is very inefficient and hard to work with and it brings your, camera your uh, computer to its knees, then that's not a good option for you. You want to have a camera that your computer can handle because you don't want to have to buy a new computer just to be able to work with the camera that you're interested in buying. I mean, maybe you need a new computer. Like, that's one thing. But if you've got a, a, a computer you're pretty happy with, make sure that whatever camera you're interested in, that your computer can handle the files from it. Because there are definitely a lot of cameras out there that record to inefficient codecs that are very difficult to work with. And if your computer can't handle it, then you might not want to buy that camera because if you do buy that camera, you'll just, you might just be creating a lot of extra work for yourself in post. You might have to create proxies or even transcode the files to a completely different format to be able to work with the camera. And that's just creating a bunch of, of extra steps, a bunch of extra work for you and eating a bunch of your time up um, just to be able to work with the camera. So um, when you look at a camera that you're interested in, read online a little bit about the codec options, um, what the files are like to work with, and again, see if you can download some of those files and test them out on your computer. If you're thinking about buying a camera like the R5 that shoots in 8K and you want to know at what, what it's like to work with those 8K files, try to find some online and download them and test edit them and see if your computer can handle it or not. Um, I know for me, when I was interested in buying the A1, my computer at the time could not handle the A1's H.265 8K footage. It completely killed my computer. Now, my computer I have today 
it can handle my 8K footage, no problem. But at the time, it couldn't, especially if you shot in 10-bit 422 8K. Like, that just brought my old computer to its knees. So, yeah, 8K sounds great, but my computer couldn't handle it. Um, so you got to really think about that when buying a camera as well because that'll play a big role in your overall experience. Another thing you need to think about when judging a camera is the features it has. There are some amazing cameras out there like Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras that shoot incredible images, but they don't have a lot of features that you may personally want. For example, they don't have autofocus. Um, the pocket cameras don't have the best audio input options. You know, there are things like that. They don't have IBIS that they're missing. And so if those things are important to you, then use those characteristics about a camera, those features and functions to, to help you judge a camera. You know, I love my Sony A1 cameras. They're fantastic as B cameras and they're fantastic for photography. But if I'm looking for an A camera, they wouldn't even be on my list because they don't have XLR inputs. Yes, you can get adapters and things to get XLR inputs, but they're not built into the body, which is something that's important to me. Um, and they don't have built-in NDs, and I want my A camera to have a built-in ND filter. Um, and there are other things too, like I, I like a bigger camera for uh, an A cam. And so there are things that like that that are really important to me. So you should make a list when you're trying to judge a camera uh, that you're interested in, and on that list, put down all the things that you may or may not be interested in. Do you want ND filters? Is that important to you? Yes or no? Write that down. Uh, is autofocus important to you? Yes or no? Is IBIS important to you? Yes or no? Is built-in audio input inputs important to you? Yes or no? What about frame rates? Are you really interested in high frame rates or do you not care? What about resolution? Do you care if a camera has 4K only or are you really looking for 6K and 8K or, or, or more. Write those things down and use that to help you judge a camera as well. Not every camera has all those features that you may or may not want. So use those uh, features to help you judge the camera as well. Another thing that you can do to help judge a camera is to get hands-on with it. Even if you don't shoot it, shoot with it, like even if you don't rent it, although renting a camera is by far and away my number one suggestion for judging a camera because then you can take it on like a project and, and get hands-on with it and decide whether or not it's gonna work for you. But if you don't wanna rent a camera or if you're not in position to rent a camera, then at least if you have a camera store near you and they have one in stock, at least go get hands-on with it. Pick it up, feel it. Is it too big? Is it too small? Is it got a, does it have a really good button layout or not? When I bought my FS7 Mark I back in like 2016, early 2016, I had, up to that point, most of my experience had been either ENG style video cameras or mirrorless slash DSLR cameras. And so when I bought my FS7, I had never dealt with one in person. I watched a lot of reviews and um, read a lot about the FS7. I knew that I wanted the features it had. I wanted the 10-bit video. I wanted 4K60. I wanted the four channels of audio. I wanted a camera that came out on the shoulder. I wanted LUT support. There were so many things about that camera that I wanted. So based on everything I read online, I bought one without ever touching it. When it came in the mail and I pulled it out of the box, I was pretty surprised at how big it was. And when I put it together, put the handle on it, put the side grip on it, and um, with the extension arm and and put the viewfinder on it, pop the battery in, put on a lens. I was like, man, that's a pretty hefty camera. And because I like Philip Bloom 
and at the time he was an FS7 shooter, I ordered the various Zacuto parts that he recommended for setting the FS7 up for dock work. And those things were also big and heavy, and I had never touched them until I ordered them. So I mounted all those parts and pieces to the camera, and it weighed, once I put the lens on it, like 16 or 17 pounds. Coming from mirrorless or DSLR cameras primarily, I was pretty floored. I was like, man, I don't know about this. This is pretty big. And the first shoot I took that whole contraption on, I was pretty miserable because I wasn't used to working with a camera that big and I was used to working either by myself or with small crews. And so that was a pretty tough transition. Now I eventually got used to it. I ran that camera for two and a half years and then upgraded the FS7 Mark II and ran that for two and a half years. So I had five years of FS7 cameras. They're great cameras, but it definitely took me a while to get used to it because I was coming from something so vastly different and I was pretty shocked. And to be honest, at the time, had I had experience shooting with one, like had I tried one out, I'm not sure that I would have bought it because I think it was so much bigger than what I wanted to work with. Now, again, I, I ran them for five years. I took them all over the world. They're great cameras. But had I had known when I went to buy my first one how big and heavy it really was, there's a chance I may not have bought that camera. The FX6, by contrast, is much more in the size range that I like working with. It's perfect for me. May not be perfect for you, but for me it is. I like the size and shape and form factor of the FX6, and, and it's very comfortable to work with. Um, but I know people that pick up the FX6 and feel the same way about it that I felt about the FS7. You know, they might not like the way it's designed or the way it feels in the hands. The only way you're ever going to know that is to go and pick one up. And so again, even if you can't rent one, Try your best to find a store or a camera shop or something that's got one in stock and go pick it up. Get hands on with it, feel it, touch it, put it on your shoulder if it's a if it's a video camera, you know, go handheld with it if it's a if it's a more of a smaller form factor camera, if it's a mirrorless camera, run around the store with it, bring a gimbal with you, throw it on the gimbal, like see see how it works and get to feel for it and see if you like it or not. Cuz that's a really great way to judge whether a camera is is a good fit for you. Um, so that's something that I, I highly recommend that you do to judge a camera uh, is to get hands on with it and feel it. Another thing that you can do uh, when judging a camera is look at the entire ecosystem. Because when you're buying into a camera, you're not just buying a camera, you're buying into an ecosystem, especially if you're not already into the, the system that you're buying into. For instance, when I switched to Sony years ago, um, I was buying into the Sony ecosystem. I didn't have anything Sony-wise. And so I was having to invest in cameras, lenses, memory cards, card readers, etc. And there's a lot that goes into investing into a camera system. And you want to make sure that the entire ecosystem is going to be a really good fit for you. I often say one of the reasons why I don't shoot with RED is because I don't like the ecosystem. RED is a great camera brand and they make great cameras. But if I was a red owner operator and let's say I had a V Raptor as my A cam, my B cam would need to still be a mirrorless camera because I like working with mirrorless cameras for B cams. They're easy to throw on sliders, gimbals, things like that. And red doesn't make mirrorless cameras. So either I have to buy a second red as my B cam, or I have to get a mirrorless camera of a different brand which means I'm now mixing and matching two brands of cameras and two brands of color sciences, which is going to create a lot more work for me in post. And if I like Sony mirrorless cameras, but red for my A cam, then 
those cameras take two different sets of lenses. So you really have to think about the entire ecosystem and make sure if it fits you. I know for me, the Sony ecosystem fits me really well. Again, it might not fit you. It all comes down to personal preference, but it fits me really well because everything from the Venice to the Venice 2 to the FX9, FX6, FX3, FX30, A7S3, A1, even the new A6700 that came out, they all take the same lenses. They all have a very similar color science. They all have very similar uh, codec options. They all have very similar menus. Well, the, the FX9, Venice, and FX6 have slightly different menus, but a lot of the same things apply from camera to camera. And so you're buying into an entire system that's going to give you the same lenses, same picture profiles for the most part, same codec options for the most part across the board. And so as a system, it works really well. So you got to keep that in mind because if you're buying into Nikon and one day you hope to own a video camera, that might be a tough choice because Nikon doesn't make video cameras. So if you ever want to buy a video camera as an A-cam down the road, you're going to have to switch brands or at the very least buy a video camera from a different brand and buy an adapter to mount your Nikon glass to it if that adapter, such an adapter even exists. So you have to really think about the ecosystem and whether or not it's a good fit for you. That's one of the reasons why I don't consider Nikon an option for me because they don't have video cameras. Um, even Fujifilm, they don't have video cameras. Panasonic does, but they're really old and they haven't developed a new video camera interchangeable lens video camera in quite a long time. So if you buy into their system, you don't really have an upgrade path at the moment. You know, Canon has an upgrade path, kind of, sort of, but even theirs, uh, their video, their C500 Mark II, C300 Mark III, they take RF, uh, excuse me, EF lenses, whereas all their new mirrorless cameras take RF lenses. So if you buy into that ecosystem, that's an issue that you're going to run into. So you got to really think about the entire ecosystem as a whole, because when you buy into that system, it's going to affect your future ability to upgrade, what your upgrade path is going to be, what your B cams are going to be able to be, what your lens choices are going to be, and things of that nature. So you really need to think about that when you're buying a new camera and judge this system, the ecosystem as a whole, when judging the camera. When judging a camera, another thing to think about is what's it going to be like when you are either A, trying to hire people to work with you, or B, if you are hoping to get hired by other people to work with them. If you think about it, there are some cameras out there that are kind of off-the-wall brands that you may not see every day. You know, there are there are some, some cameras out there made by companies like Kenafinity that are really cool cameras, but... If you ask yourself how many Ken Infinities you've seen in the wild, the answer is probably zero. Like chances are you've probably never seen a Ken Infinity camera in the wild. They're really cool cameras. They're they're right there with Blackmagic and 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 are you know kind of pushing the limits of what a camera uh, competitor to Red can do at a much cheaper price. But the reality is, is not a lot of people have Ken Infinity cameras. So if you buy a Ken Infinity camera and you're hoping to get hired by other companies to freelance for them or to shoot for them they may not like that you have a Canon Infinity camera. You know, imagine a, a production company near you um, saying, hey, do you do any freelance work? We'd love to bring you out and do a shoot for us. And you're like, yeah, I do. And they're like, okay, what camera do you have? And you're like, oh, I have a Canon Infinity. And they're like, what is that? <laughs> you know, you don't you don't want to have something that's kind of weird and not not seen all that often um, because it could, it could prevent you from getting 
business from certain people. Or, you know, if you have a camera like that and you're interested in hiring people to come work for you uh, on, on a freelance basis, they may not know how to operate your camera or they may bring a different camera that doesn't match yours uh, because you're the only person you know that has a Kinefinity type camera. And I'm just using Kinefinity as an example, but it's something to think about. So I don't see as many, I see some black magics, for example, out in the wild. And I used to own a black magic back in the day, but I don't see near as many black magics in person as I do Sony or Canon. And so for me, that's something that I think about when I'm buying a camera because I want to make sure that whatever I buy, um, there's a good chance that there are other production companies around me that uh, would hire me uh, because I have that camera or would not hire me because I have some off the wall camera. I like to buy something that's kind of current that could get me work. You know, I've gotten jobs literally because I've shot on the FS7 or FX6. Um, cause people were looking for FS7 or FX6 shooters. So my camera literally got me work just because I had one. Um, and, and similarly, I was, I've been able to hire people over the years to come, uh, freelance for me on projects and they knew how to operate my cameras because a lot of people know how to run Canon and Sony. Um, so that could be a consideration for you. Now, if you're shooting a short film and you're buying a camera for a couple short film projects you're going to do and, you know, you're not too worried about that, then that may not matter. But it is something to think about when buying a camera. Another way to judge a camera is how expensive it is going to be to get it set up and to be able to use it. Uh, I, I was talking earlier in the podcast about an FX9. When you buy an FX9, you also got to buy XQD cards, a bigger tripod, a bigger fluid head because it's a bigger camera. And you're probably not going to find that it's super comfortable out of the box. So you're going to want to get different accessories to make it more comfortable to work with. And so you might end up spending a lot more money on that camera than you think. So use that when you're buying a camera because it's not just... $10,000, because again, it's come down $1,000 in price, so now it's ten grand. So it's not just $10,000 for the camera. It could be $10,000 plus all the accessories, right? Um, same thing with like the C500 Mark II. It's like 15 or 16 grand. Actually, I think it came down in price, but at launch, it was 15 or 16 grand. I think it was 16. But you're not just buying a camera for 16 grand. You got to buy the camera and all the accessories for it. So you're going to be spending over 20 grand on that camera. Mirrorless cameras, um, are not nearly as bad about that, but it is still something to think about. If you're gonna buy an A1 for $6,500, you better go ahead and get prepared to buy CF Express Type A cards because if you wanna maximize the A1's performance, you're gonna need those faster cards and they're expensive. So you gotta think about that too. So you gotta think about what it's really gonna cost you to get the camera up and running because sometimes it can cost you quite a bit of money to really trick the camera out. I know for me, the FX6 costs six grand. I've got another five or so in it, maybe six in it. And between memory cards and batteries and accessories, I've easily probably got over, I for sure have over $10,000 in my FX6, um, pro probably more like 11 or 12. And so I've pretty much doubled almost the price of that camera to get it up and running. Now, you don't have to do that, but for me and my shooting style, I, I spent that kind of money to get it up and running for the way I like to use the camera. So you, you can't just look at it and say, oh, it's $6,000. I mean, it could just be six grand if you have some memory cards lying around and you use the battery it comes with and that's all you need. But if you want to really set it up for something that's comfortable for you, it may cost you quite a bit more money than that. So when you're thinking about a camera, also think about what accessories you want to get for it and judge it based on what the real expense of that camera is going to be. So as you can see, there are several things that you can do to help you judge a camera. You can go to DP Review, see how the camera's... Um, detail level, sharpness, 
and level of aliasing in Moray or lack thereof compare to another. You can go to CineD's website and see how low light and dynamic range of one camera compares to another. You can download footage online, whether it's still images from a mirrorless camera or whether it's video footage, and edit it and get first-hand on experience of whether or not the, the files work on your computer and if you like the files that you're working with, if you like coloring them, do they fit your style? So you can download that and get a firsthand look at what to expect there. And you can go to a store, get hands on with it, feel it, touch it, or at least rent it if you can. Uh, that's even better to, to, to actually take it out on a project and see what it's like to work with it. So those are all things that you can do to help you judge a camera. And remember, a camera needs to fit you and your shooting style, not someone else's. All the time, I hear people say, you got to have this camera, you got to have that camera, this camera's the best, that camera's the best, but it's all relative. You know, to uh, someone who likes to film fly fishing content out on the river by themselves, a GoPro might literally be the best camera money can buy for them because they're not going to drag an Alexa Mini LF out to the water with them. So it's really dependent on what you do and what your intention of that camera is. So think about the entire experience that you expect to have with that camera, the form factor, the button layout, how easy it is to work with. Um, do Are other people going to hire you if you have it or not hire you because you have some weird camera? You know, um, is it going to be... Um, a camera that you can invest in the entire ecosystem in and have, have the ability to grow in the future? Or is it going to be a camera that, you know, you buy into, but then when you're ready to upgrade, you have to go to a whole nother brand. Think about all of those things and use those different items along with uh, different items that are important to you, such as autofocus or ND filters or IBIS or things that might matter to you and make a list and, and use all of those tools to help you judge a camera. But at the end of the day, remember, a camera needs to fit you, not someone else. This is your camera. It's your purchasing decision. And you're the one who has to use it every day. So when you go to buy a camera for yourself, now if you're just buying it for a company, that's one thing. But if you're buying a camera for yourself, keep in mind that you need to be happy with the camera because you are the one that matters. Thanks, guys, for listening to today's podcast. If you have any comments or questions about what I said, go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group and post your question there or your comments there and let me know. If you like the podcast, leave me a comment and be sure to subscribe to listen to future episodes. I appreciate each and every one of you, and I can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Take care. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.